This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Gaming the Soviet Space Program. L.A. Train Package Thefts. A Scenario for Our Mythos God. And Occult Mary Poppins. Ken, do you know anything about kitties? I might. But do you know about magical kitties? I know everything. Everything about Magical Kitties Save the Day, a new RPG for gamers of all ages. But, you know, young ones in particular. A perfect intro to the hobby. You mean perfect? I do not. Like the title says, you're Magical Kitties. Every Magical Kitty has a human. Every human has a problem. In Magical Kitties Save the Day, you use your magical powers to solve problems and... Save the day! You all live in a hometown that's filled with foes like witches, aliens, and hyper-intelligent raccoons. They make human problems worse, so the kitties go on adventures to stop them and help the humans. The super simple but elegant rule system puts the emphasis on storytelling and puts the dice in the players' hands, not the GM's. And it supports a setting and characters that players are familiar with and love from the start. When you open the box for Magical Kitties Save the Day, sitting right on top is a copy of Magical Kitties and the Big Adventure. A play graphic novel adventure. Within moments of opening it, kiddos can create their magical kitty and go on an amazing adventure that also teaches them how to play the game. Run Magical Kitty Save the Day for kids as young as six years old. And for everyone else who loves kitties. A great game for kids to start running on their own with plenty of tools and guidance for first-time GM. If you've been looking for a way to introduce your friends and family to role-playing games, Magical Kitty Save the Day is the perfect game to do it. Do you mean perfect? I also do not. Pick up your copy at atlas-games.com. You are cute. You are cunning. You are fierce. You are magical kitties, and it's time to save the day. The rattle of dice and the thump of miniatures tell us that once more we're in the beautiful plush, actually somewhat cold and brutalist confines of the (laughs) gaming hut, and instead of Peter Frampton, we have the... Soviet Men's Army Chorus? Greatest Hits is our GM screen, and... Oh, wait! The miniatures, they just blew up on the launch pad! Because oh, Ken, uh, no! Beloved, and we worked so hard on painting them! Oh, man. Uh, uh, because uh, beloved Patreon backer Neil Barnes asks, How would you do a game about the Soviet space program? We all know the NASA story, but the combination of post-war socialist utopian optimism with the reality of post-Allen life seems pretty fertile. Is there any other non-Jilatlov past Soviet elliptony that can be worked in as well? And the uh, the history of the, the Soviet uh, space program is an interesting study in contrast, because if you just know the cliches, you would think that uh, it was hobbled by too much centralization as opposed to the uh, American system. And in fact, it was too much competition within the system, among many other things, that hobbled it and led to a series of explosions where uh, NASA got to just have a good old American, efficient, accountable, technocratic agency that uh, that outshone them. And uh, did I mention explosions? Have I mentioned explosions so far, Ken? I don't know if you've mentioned the explosions, Robin, because what I want to emphasize here is that if we had the right stuff, the Soviets had the other kind of stuff. And all love to apple-cheeked Yuri Gagarin 
and uh, space martyr Laika, who we all venerate, but oh my lord, were they bad at this? <laughs> and it's kind of a, a, a remarkable, I guess, in a way, a sort of a cack handed tribute to the sheer Russian undaunted desire to do stuff that they actually uh, got as much of the space program done as they could. Right. And, and certainly, the desire to screw over the other guy in the parallel agency. Right, exactly. <laughs> that's a pretty good motivating factor, yeah. too. Which will be our gaming uh, hook, I think, when we get into this. Yeah, and of course, they, they would have had a uh, a 20-year head start on us if they hadn't put their lead rocket designer in the gulag for 10 years. Maybe that would have fixed it. Oh, my goodness, what a bunch of goofs. Um, so I think I want to sort of take a little bit of a step back and lay a couple of things down for beloved Patreon backer Neil Barnes, because what he's looking at is not just a litany of triumphs and disasters, as one has in any space program. Uh, the Soviets, of course, do uh, the disasters better because they're better at disasters. And they can cover them up. Yeah, right. But that leads to his question of sort of the Soviet elliptony. And the field of Soviet elliptony is less rich in this area than the field of American elliptony, because if you made up nonsense about the Soviet space program, you were thrown in prison. So there's less of it. Simultaneously, if uh, you were no longer gulagged, if you were into magic or the occult or UFOs, but you were just fired from your job as an academic or as an anything and got to, you know, chip ice off a monument for the rest of your life. So that cuts way back on the amount of um, surrounding nonsense. So we have, of course, all manner of suppressed transmissions from the moon and uh, astronauts seeing UFOs and uh, all manner of good stuff happening in our space program. Uh, the Soviet stuff, for this to feel properly Soviet, whenever anyone in the universe hints that there might be something more going on, uh, that person should be unpersoned or better yet disappeared. So your player characters will not necessarily be, you know, able to draw all these lines and connect all these dots even worse, nor will you, the GM be able to do it. The Soviet UFO program such that it was, and it, we still of course don't know to what extent there was one, because uh, when they were briefly declassifying everything, UFO nuts did not go to Moscow to uh, copy down the archives the way that uh, Barbarossa historians or espionage historians did. But there were a number of UFO sightings in the Soviet Union, but the government only really started taking them. And I want to seriously, again, is you know, an open question because since UFOs were basically a gigantic U.S. Air Force disinformation op to mess with the Soviets, they're embarrassed if they fell for it. But there's a, an incident called the Petrovadzatsk incident in 1977 that is the first time that you were allowed to discuss UFOs in the Soviet press. And at, before that, it was all clamped down. So if you imagine an, an America in which, you know, UFOs you know, were not even thought of until the late seventies, you know, you, you have a whole different uh, universe of elliptony. So the, yeah, and, and according to Valley in like the sixties and seventies, there is someone, there are some ones in the Soviet system putting out feelers and initially Valley, well, these, they must know what's going on. And essentially they're trying to figure out what the Americans know as, you know, previously mentioned falling for the disinformation campaign. Mm -hmm. So if you in a world where UFO ex exist, you can have those people 
be the player characters and be investigating what's going on. But as you point out, it's way, way below the, so to speak, radar compared to the way it would be in the U.S. Mm-hmm. And again, you can't just bring it up because that gets you frozen out. And so if so, if you're sort of standard player character types whose job is to investigate stuff, well, to begin with, you're playing the KGB, apparently. So that's going to be a problem for you. But also, you know, you are legitimately I mean, you're, you're the Mulder of the KGB, which is yes, but a, a Mulder in which rather than being put in the basement and still allowed to go out on cases, you're sent to Siberia and told to count polar bear noses and until you fly right. Um, you know, Mulder, even in our FBI, would be transferred to Butte, Montana. So, Soviet Butte, Montana. Think of that. But the other thing is that the Soviet rocket program, of course, descended from a Russian rocket program conceptualized by again, Konstantin Tsiolkovsky. And Tsiolkovsky was part of the sort of occult is a misleading word, but I'm going to use it. The occult scene right before the fall of the Romanovs that was very wrapped up in sort of the symbolist movement in art and poetry. It was wrapped up in a lot of experimental theater. There was a whole radical arts movement that involved radical new ways of seeing. And because the Russians were credulously aping the French at that time, as they often did, they were credulously aping the theosophy and uh, Freemasonry and Martinism that Pappas, among other people, brought into Russia in the 1880s and 1890s. So Tsiolkovsky grows up as part of that culture. So if you're looking for a magical or sorcerous background of the Soviet rocket program, it's you have the to Yellow go, King. Yes. It's all up straight they, the Yellow they, King. they want to open the doors of Carcosa. And so you can you can go back to Tsiolkovsky, but again, all those guys were really, really purged. Uh, they were purged by Lenin. They were purged by Stalin like three times. There's you know the fragments of that are nothing. If you compare that to, you know, I forget which astronaut it is, but he carried out a Masonic initiation on the moon, right? Carried all of his Mason gear up in his, in his space equipment and just, yep, here we are. Mason's on the moon, setting up a moon lodge that would not have flown uh pun intended in the Soviet space program because the KGB was literally had orders going back to Lenin to be on the lookout for this kind of nonsense. So again, it's harder to do the vibe that you would naturally fall into in America. So you need to be looking at what is specifically fun and interesting about the Soviet space program. And I think that is in a way a sort of a Canadian quality being enormous cold places will do that of having an implacable universe that is out to get you. And I think that Soviet UFOs, they're less often space brothers and they're more often weird enigmas that mess things up. You could certainly uh, if you wanted to let the Soviet penchant for hiring political engineers over actual engineers off the hook, blame UFOs for any number of the enormous number of explosions and disasters that racked uh, the Soviet program. I don't Do we want to go through a brief chronology of the program and discuss when would be a good, the best time to set a game? Robin, what do you think? Yeah, I, I think so. Um, and spoiler, it's the 60s, yeah. uh, which happens to be fall of Delta Green territory. So 57 is Sputnik, right. which is the thing that terrifies America, that the Soviets appear to be ahead of them. And, uh, and then there are periodic moments where the, you know, they log a number of firsts, but also there's a lot of uh, things that blow up. And the separation between their ICBM program and their space program is not as great as in America. And uh, many of the same explosion technology that explodes and kills people and results to cover-ups is also found in the, a nuclear program. So in 1960, there's the 
a Nedlin catastrophe, which is not known in the West until like 20, 30 years later, in which an ICBM goes off on the uh, test on the launch pad and kills an untold number of people. Including an awful lot of rocket designers. <laughs> and a lot of rocket designers. And I think one fear uh, that the characters are going to have uh, I'm going to interrupt the chronology to do some, this is how I would do this game, is I would reach into drama system, in fact, as the thing to do the Soviet rocket program with, because it's all about competition between these different rocket scientists who are all uh, battling each other to have their program recognized and to uh, not blow up on the launch pad. And I think it would be interesting to do a, uh, a dramatic series uh, with the, you know the scientists and the astronauts and their uh, wives and and so forth and in this case some of the women are astronauts the first woman in space is in 64 her name is Valentina Tereshkova but i would essentially imagine what if Armando Iannucci of Death of Stalin and Veep fame and uh, Craig Mazin who did Chernobyl teamed up on HBO to do the 60s Soviet space program as a show, and then instead of them doing it, you do it as part of your drama system game. Uh, so anyway, 1960, the dogs Belka and Strelka are the first animals to return from space. I thought I would focus on a returning animal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, sure. So you yeah. and the Soviets both. <laughs> exactly. In 61, an astronaut named Valentin Bondarenko dies in an endurance chamber fire. And uh, guess what? That's covered up. <laughs> 61, of course, is Yuri Gargarin, first uh, person in, in space, up orbiting there. Uh, 65 is the first extravehicular uh, movement in space. In uh, 66, one of uh, the great des rocket designers dies of uh, overwork. That's a lot. another thing that your characters will be doing a lot in the show is, is dying of various horrible uh, things and encountering the... Soviet healthcare system. And that is, that is, by the way, I think the pregnant moment to begin your drama system game, because up until 66, the crazy amount of competition that you're talking about is held in check by the fact that Korolev, Sergei Korolev, the man who basically made Sputnik happen, is considered the last word in rockets. And he is known as the great designer. And certainly after the Nadellan catastrophe, his identity and movements are kept secret even within the Soviet Union. So the only thing that they know is there is a guy named the great designer who is in charge. And unless you're very high up indeed, you don't know who he is because the Soviets are worried that Nadellan was sabotage as opposed to grotesque communist incompetence <laughs> because so worrying he's about like that wild Bill Hickok in, uh, in Deadwood, he <laughs> dies in episode one. Exactly. And starts off, but that's what starts this fissioning of the Soviet rocket programs. I mean, they're all under the same thing. I think it's called Roscom, but there's different sub projects within Roscom that, all compete for for funding and for attention in the same way that that happens in NASA. But in NASA, fewer people explode on the launch pad because of it. Not none, of course, but fewer. So the um, the death of Korolev, I think, is sort of the the great moment to begin that drama system thing. And again, Korolev is named at his funeral. At, at his funeral, he's given a state funeral. He's buried in the Kremlin wall. Everyone talks about how great Korolev was. And that is the moment at which everyone can then, because his movements were all kept secret, say, oh, I was with him just when he died. And he said, my flight to Venus program is the good program. And that's when, you know, stuff starts 
you know, going off, although it obviously was going and off And this is before. a perfect first episode, as all the characters at the funeral schmoozing and scheming. Mm-hmm. And so then we, we return to our series of disasters already in progress. In 1967, Soyuz 1 crashes, killing Vladimir Komarov. Uh, in 1969, they have two very dramatic N1. It was their super rocket, their version of Saturn. It fails all four times they try to launch it, but twice it fails by exploding on the launch pad, including an enormous explosion right before the launch of Apollo 11. So, ha ha, bad timing. And that's at the Turatom launch pad. There's a number of Soviet space facilities. And of course, in a UFOE version, you would have a closed Soviet science city that is also a space launch facility or that is a closed science city within one of the other space launch facilities and uh, disguised as missile research like at Kaputsin Yar or uh, any number of other there's enough Soviet launch spaces that it's not just Cape Canaveral or Baikonur. There's many, many places that they were launching stuff from. And having a secret launch facility can give you a sort of a, a home base feel and let you have uh, the characters have a reason for meeting all the time, as opposed to realistically, they'd all be off siloed in their own projects and they'd never come together. Right. Right. And so uh, after that, again, we go back to the successes and failures. So in 70, they have the first lunar rover. So that's good for them. Uh, but their moon program is finally canceled because see everything that happened in 1969. And then we see their sort of shift to their specialty of the space station. So in 71, they have the first space station. That's Solute 1. They have the first Mars probe the same year. 75, they have the first Venus probe. And Canon 80, there's another explosion. Yeah, it's the Placetsk explosion. This is another, you know, rocket test, basically. Yeah. And this is a satellite carrying rocket. So just because they've stopped their manned program doesn't mean they've stopped blowing things up. They, uh, you know, were launching a, a satellite. It blew up at the Placets Cosmodrome, which was still a secret Cosmodrome. No one admitted that this Cosmodrome existed until, <laughs> I guess, there was an enormous fireball visible from space at it. And uh, it killed uh, 48 people in, in that level of disaster. So their disasters are generally bigger than uh, NASA's space disasters. And uh, it was basically one of those things where, oh, the fuel filters didn't work. We've gone back. We found out that the filters were badly designed, but sadly we can't figure out who designed them because all the evidence from the rocket burned up in the fire. Well, I guess no one can be punished. And then that continued the, 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 the storied Soviet rocket tradition. And then, uh, as you say, they have the space station program, Apollo Soyuz famous, you know, uh, meetup happens in space, uh, in the seventies. Uh, they go to Venus with various probes that sometimes come back and fight Steve Austin, the Bionic Man, if I remember my historical documentaries from the period correctly. And then in 86, they launch the first permanently manned space station, the Mir, uh, which is up there for a remarkably long time. And, you know, props to them for doing it. And I always thought that it would be quite the irony if the aliens did show up and said, well, obviously, the Russians are the most successful part of your species because they're the only ones who have a space station. We're putting them in charge of the planet. And it would be just what we deserve for letting Skylab fall out of space back in the day, as far as I'm well, concerned. Well, uh, what I'm thinking about the aliens is, of, of course, they go to the Soviet Union, not because of the space station. They go much earlier, but they go because they're space brothers. They're, right. they're space communists. Everybody knows that communism works in space. And it's Posadism, right? They're all, you know, yeah. post-scarcity dolphin people. And the, the problem, though, is that once they arrive, they either say, you know, you should fix that fuel gauge, and they get 
sent to the gulag or <laughs> they're on the, the launch pad and they go, oh, wait, what that, what's up with that fuel? And, you know, it's just a succession of aliens showing up and being blown up and exiled. This is, this is your Ianucci uh, spirit is that, you know. I, I, yes, I'm still in that headspace for Is sure. that the aliens keep showing up and dying in horrible Soviet space program failures. So the, they, they show up, they're like, we're communists, you're communists, here's the secret of the antimatter drive. They give it to them, and sure enough, there is a giant antimatter explosion that always gets passed off as a as a meteor hit or something that happens. Or, or often the antimatter drive is just suppressed because nobody, no human scientist, can take credit for it. So right, no, that that's the thing. Is like ah, we we we'd love to, but we can't. Yeah, the, the, the commissar's nephew designed this drive. We'll, mm-hmm. we'll we'll do your antimatter drive next. So yeah, I, I think I, I guess some of this is how how much of a farce do you want this story to be versus how much of a grim and gritty struggle for survival against the KGB and rocket explosions. Uh, how much do you want to play up the sort of weird, you know, head spacey woo of the Tsiolkovsky era as a very deeply buried, but still popping up at odd times vibe? How much do you want it to play into the sort of grim, you know, uh, sort of the cartoon version of the Soviet secret bureaucracy with psionic uh, warfare and telepathic KGB agents wandering around. There's a lot of different directions you can go with it. And I feel like nailing the feel and communicating that to the players relatively early is going to be kind of important because these are discordant elements that are harder. I think certainly for American players, maybe Russian players have a a more nuanced sense of all this, but it's going to be harder for American players to go from gritty, brutalist horror to whack symbolist delight. They don't have for the Russians the same sort of diet of Vietnam films and 60s stuff that we do so that we can go from hippies to Vietnam without, you know, catching a mental break to public housing. Speaking of the triumphs of the 1960s, we can do all those things because we have a whole backstory of pop culture and Everyone is basically free to make up nonsense about those things. Harder to do, I think, for a feel of running a Soviet program. What do you think in terms of having non-Russian players playing these games? Are there other pitfalls that you see on the on the road? I, I think basically it, uh, you're pointing out the tone thing. So if if you are Russian, you are going to take the tragedies seriously. And uh, if you are not, I think even if everybody sits down and swears that they're going to play it straight-faced and grim given last week's discussion of everything bending toward the picaresque, the players will eventually start going into black comedy territory. Well, the Russians are masters of black comedy, certainly. Yes, um, <laughs> they, they might very well also still do that. Yeah. I, I think uh, now that we've uh, you know hammered out the tone that it will inevitably go to, I think it's time for us to uh, exit uh, this somewhat tragic hut to uh, one with a bit more mass and uh, uh, lower stakes. Dracula is not a novel. We know this. It's the after-action report of a failed British intelligence attempt... To recruit a vampire, yeah, yeah, we've been through all this. And the Dracula dossier director's handbook has more secrets, more dangers, more mysteries... For players and directors to explore together, we did a year's worth of ads about it. But it doesn't have Varna. It doesn't have the Ring of Dracula either, or 13th Age-style icons, or bibliomancy. Or a Hand of Glory, 
or read Mercury, or hard-won advice and actual play reports. If only someone could gather up all that material that you and Gareth wrote after the fact. Someone has. You made Gar do it, didn't you? We've assembled. Gar has assembled. The cuttings from the dossier have been assembled into a 50-page PDF. Available free with a special offer from the Pelgrane store. Just buy a print copy of the Director's Handbook standalone. Or the Dracula Dossier Core Bundle, the Director's Handbook and Dracula Unredacted in print. Or the Dracula Dossier Starter Kit Bundle, the Knight's Black Agent's Core Book, the Director's Handbook, and Dracula Unredacted in print. Get 25% off any of those print bundles, plus the PDF versions and the cuttings from the Dossier PDF, entirely free with the code VAMP2021. And don't worry, original Kickstarter backers. The Cuttings PDF will mystically appear in your Pelgrane store bookshelves without further expenditure. Do nothing, Kickstarter backers. All others use code VAMP2021 for plenty of savings and lots of cuttings. Headlines scream across the teletype. Sirens blare in the distance. Somewhere a detective takes a drag off a cigarette and starts his fourth 12-hour shift because this hut is ripped from the pages of The Crime Blotter. And in The Crime Blotter today, we're talking about a, uh, I guess, a crime that has gone viral or a bunch of crimes that have gone viral on the uh, interwebs. Yeah, in my day, we call this a crime flap. We call it a but flap. But now it's, a, it's gone viral. It's gone viral. And uh, this is, and I, if you are on Twitter, you have no doubt seen, or maybe it's even on other socials media, but you've seen the pictures of the various uh, Los Angeles rail yards and areas near the rail yards where gangs of criminals have swarmed onto Union Pacific trains uh, that are carrying cargo, opened the cargo containers, and just torn through all the packages looking for the good stuff, looking for, you know, designer bags, looking for, no doubt, uh, prescription drugs, looking for all kind of things, and then leaving the whole place littered with someone's Christmas presents, probably, you know, just scattered all over the, the walls. And uh, the railroad began by blaming the Los Angeles district attorney, a guy named George Gascon, saying, this is what happens when you don't prosecute property crimes. You get a <laughs> zillion property criminals showing up to steal stuff off of our trains. Yes. And Los Angeles responded by saying, also, this <laughs> happens when you cut your security force by 85% and fire them all and don't replace them as anyone. And have you thought about locking the trains? That might be a thing. Lock, yeah. lock the trains, maybe? People um, uh, start taking advantage of that. And Robin, I feel like it's our responsibility as thought leaders to say they're both right. Government and business can work together to ruin everything. <laughs> <laughs> so I feel like Los Angeles, you know, it, well, it's it's always been a place where you know, stories happen and crime is a story. So here you go. And I guess the, you know, the larger point is that they've got a giant wave of this for whatever reason. And like you, when I first saw that picture, I said, well, that's, that's any number of story hooks right there is you find a it's, MacGuffin. The landscape is strewn with MacGuffins. Yes, exactly. It's like you're, you're trying, oh, do I want the glowing box? Do I want the plans? Do I want the, the wristwatch? What, what MacGuffin do I want to pick up and find myself thrust into a world of occult nonsense? It's definitely very, uh, Thames mudlarky. If you have a, a steampunk or Victorian attitude, the notion that, you know, one assumes that kids run onto those tracks and just pick up 
you know, anything that looks good or saleable after the criminals have left sort of taken the, the big obvious targets. But there's lots of stuff there that you could probably, you know, score and do something with. Certainly there was ample COVID tests in the pictures that people were showing. So that's got a street value, I'm sure. I, I feel like there's a degree to which you could do a 21st century steampunk vibe starting at this at this rail track this very much felt like the the stretch of the thames where all the shipwreck stuff would come up in the 1860s uh, what what was your first story vibe right and as a way into that i'm going to you know sort of dig into the the debunking part of the story a little bit more in that oh. this has been going on for a while it just happens that a photographer got some great shots of the the wreckage uh the letter from uh, george gaskin back to the union pacific is a marvel of legal wryness. Uh, he also points out that they're complaining about the cases not being prosecuted, and he complains back that, well, you sent us a bunch of BS cases. And I'll also point out uh, for the thing that will stream into the storyline is that everyone agrees that organized gangs are responsible for this, right up to the governor, who, uh, although a Democrat, knows that uh, if you can exhort against crime, you should do so. It's always very popular in both most sides of the aisle. Mm -hmm. But if it is organized, we might want to cast our minds to Nicholas Pileggi's Wise Guys or its film adaptation, uh, Martin Scorsese's Goodfellas. And remember all those scenes at Idlewild Airport where basically the uh, the main gang featured in uh, in both of those is like, well, we own the place and we paid off all the security guys. And uh, so if there's organized crime involved uh, and we don't know which organized crime gang it is on the shield it would be the armenians they were the mm -hmm. uh, go-to organized crime gang in los angeles people are being paid off there's a reason why <laughs> the uh, few security people who are left are not doing much about it there might even be a reason why nobody much locks the uh, trains because ultimately well i can tell you why that is that's because locking the trains adds hours to the unlocking and unloading of the trains uh, if you locked every train car then the unloading takes much longer and becomes much more expensive because you've got to pay union train unloaders to do all the unlocking and unloading. And it's a, it's a cost measure. It's, it's right. like everything is. And right? basically there's shrinkage. <laughs> the union Pacific would like if taxpayers uh, paid for their security. And essentially that's what this initiative is about. Uh, when the police are interviewed, of course, like any good police PR person, the uh, one of the uh, LAPD reps said, well, you know, we need we need more budget, which is, you know, your number one job talking to any reporter as a police PR person is to say that your budget is too small. As any government PR person. Yes. However, uh, we probably kind of sympathize with not the uh, necessarily the organized crime people going in and busting things open and getting the valuable stuff, including people's in insulin, probably. But the folks who come along afterwards and kind of sort through the rubble and sometimes yeah, the, the, the mudlarks, the mudlarks. They find quite valuable things. Sometimes one person described finding a Louis Vuitton bag and even a robot arm worth five figures, which implies that even the mudlarks know where to go to fence a robot arm. Yeah. Well, I mean, I feel like if you're in the mudlark business for any length of time, you get a sense of where you unload people's insulin versus where you unload robot arms. I, I think it's probably two different offices. Right. 
And we want to focus on the robot arms. Yeah. <laughs> for various reasons. Well, the, 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 the insulin thieves are the bad mudlarks. Exactly. They're your foes, right? They're awful. They're the hairy limes of this setting. Yeah. They're, or they're the hairy the limes, the boss of them. gangsters that you don't right. want to cross, right? You mm-hmm. have to wait until they do their stuff. This could be your opening to a low-level superhero thing where... You know, all five of you open the package that has this super soldier juice in it and everybody, it vaporizes and you all get an extra superpower and then you're kind of superhero mudlarks in contemporary L.A. That seems uh, pretty good. Or you just know that your photocopy of the Necronomicon was shipped in this package. It was busted open and you know somebody has it and uh, things go all awry. Or you can go the other way as if things are going awry in Lincoln Heights, which is the neighborhood where the rail yard is, and you can trace that to the influence of uh, an amulet or a, an occult task or whatever other sort of uh, trouble-causing MacGuffin you want to throw into the mix. And I feel like this is obviously a, a pregnant area for unknown armiesing, and you could certainly imagine a sort of a cargo cult-type attitude where, you know, one magically aware group mudlarks among them says you know if we could figure out how to cause the robberies to happen to to, you know cause the train to open up at a time and place of our choosing or with a cargo of our choosing we could do a lot better and so they begin to ritually you know construct uh, you know maybe in this case it's not you know a big bamboo airfield but it's like they've bought uh, you know, they've gone to all the railroad stores around and, and bought an exact model of the Lincoln Heights rail yard. And they, you know, using sympathetic magic, caused derailments or stoppages or slowdowns or whatever they need to do to allow the uh, the gangs to come in and, and open up the cargo so that they can go in and get, you know, the really good robot arms or Xerox Necronomicons or whatever magical thing that they've uh, summoned onto that train through their train magic. And again, you know, railroad schedules are all numbers and times. That's astrology and Kabbalism right there. So I feel like you could pull this into a, 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 a kind of a fun, gritty, grotty occult vibe. Again, that steampunk vibe, the notion of taking 1880s, 1890s golden dawn magic and transporting it into a sort of um, uh, almost an organic or uh, emergent magical phenomenon in 21st century L.A., uh, I feel like there's a lot of fun power that could be had by that. And instead of ethers, you're, you know, commuting with the dead spirits of old Hollywood or something. If you wanted to pull it in that direction or some other direction, I just feel like that visual is, is, is a super strong one. And, and you could build some, some maybe surprisingly rich occult backstory or front story rather off of it. And I think another great visual is you're the mudlarks. You're standing back. You know, the, the organized crime guys are going in first and you're waiting for them. And you can see them from a distance. You're not going to mess with them. You know, you're well back, but you've got, you know, the cool binoculars that you found three weeks ago and you're looking through them and you see the one of the containers blow open and some uh, formless, hideous shape come and devour the uh, people who broke into that container. And now you're the ones who know that there's a monster in Lincoln Heights. Yeah, or or, or that could be the start of a very low-level but uh, kind of powerfully fun Night's Black Agents game. It's better, instead of burned spies, necessarily, your teens, your area teens, maybe you're, you know, you're, you're super good at parkour because you've been skateboarding illegally, and so you're great at running away from cops, but you don't have all of the advantages that a Night's Black Agents character, but you did just see a vampire come out and eat a whole bunch of Armenians, and now the Armenians are mad at you because... They think you did it, and the vampire knows you saw them. And so, 
the vampire's like, hey, always in the market for Renfields, and maybe your buddies, the insulin thieves, all become their Renfields because they're all about, you know, that kind of lifestyle. And now you've got a a, a happening teen Knights Black Agents I happening. Always in, in the market for Renfields would be a great title for that campaign. That would be. That would be. It's an episode title, I think, in the limited series. Well, now that we've titled an episode and or series, it's time for us to uh, head on uh, to our next uh, segment and see what that's all about. The Best of Askfageln is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic choose-your-adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English... That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Astfageln on DriveThru. Protect this podcast's precious packages of gaming and weirdness by chipping in alongside such beloved Patreon backers as Jeremy French, John Kingdon, Toonspew, Andrea Coletta, and Derek McMullen. Once more, the gates yawn open, and the stars come right, welcoming us into the newest and most primordial of our huts, the non-Euclidean Mythos Hut. In the Mythos Hut, we have been building a new deity, or dare I say, discovering a new Mythos deity, over the last three huts, and now we are figuring out the scenario in which you can introduce Kotha Nurin, the first destruction, the secret word, into your cthulhu campaign of whatever stripe. And so we've talked about the qualities of a mythos deity. We've talked about the space that exists within the mythos for us to create one. So we created Kotha Nurin. We sort of figured out what Durleth and uh, Fritz Leiber and Ramsey Campbell did with Kotha Nurin, which was good fun. And now and somehow they knew about FBI profiling. So that yeah, was very well, prescient of them. Very gifted. Um, uh, and what can you do at your table then with Kotha Nurin, uh, Robin? Right. So in, in this scenario, we are imagining that uh, this, this latter day, Mythos story that introduced this uh, this entity has the same sort of cachet with players that the earlier uh, stories of Lovecraft and Campbell and Durlith did. It's something that doesn't happen anymore. There's lot, lots of neo-Lovecraftian mm. stories, and because there are so many of them. And because they're generally not very good. No particular one <laughs> breaks. And, and I think nobody tries, actually, to introduce a new, new mythos deity. So, so this more ambitious story... Uh, has has landed with the audience. We're assuming the players know Kotha Nurin and that they'll react to her presence the way they would to Nyarlathotep or Cthulhu or whatever when they figure out that uh, she's involved. Or a Thakwar Yagalanek. Yeah. So we looked at a story where uh, there's one 
a character uh, going up against what seems to be a series of serial killings, and it leads into the Yithian angle, and we want to find something that, A, uh, fits an entire group of characters, and for the purposes of this, we're going to go back in time to uh, Trail of Cthulhu to the 30s, so this will be a story that will be happening earlier, but of course, Kothunurin is the Big Bang. She's in every time. She can be in the 30s, and we want to find something that emphasizes a different angle about her, and I thought one thing that the other story didn't hit was that whole Big Bang thing. So I'm thinking a scenario that revolves around the telescope that will somehow measure the beginning of the universe, that will be able to look at, into the Big Bang. And of right. course, if you look into the Big Bang, who are you looking into? You're looking into Kothanurin. It looks Kothanurin back at you. Looks back at you. Mm-hmm. So something about this telescope, obviously, even now, we do not have a telescope that allows us to look back into the Big Bang. And so, obviously, Ken, this is some sort of radium telescope or uh, a telescope that has been uh, discovered in uh, an ancient tome uh, that perhaps was written by the pseudopods of a Yithian. And uh, we want to then have the players involved somehow in the sequence of events leading up to uh, this telescope being used or to prevent the telescope from being used. So what uh, which end of the story now do you want to start at? At the climax and work backwards, or do you want to start out with why they get involved in the first place? Well, I think I want to take a little detour and say that a lot of telescopy now is done virtually. The telescopes are all radio telescopes. You don't have a visual telescope that looks at anything anymore. I mean, you still do, but radio telescopes and satellite telescopes are bringing vastly more information. And so the telescope that is Going to see the Big Bang is an attempt to virtually discover the Big Bang by getting input from all kind of other telescopes. And the person who's running the project is either been Yithian contaminated, read the Nicotic manuscript, something, but the specific spots and times that the given virtual signal comes from that the satellite is over Rilia or the uh, Arecibo before it fell apart, you know, is it one time because it's the corner of the Bermuda Triangle, etc. He's picking all these vortex spots because that's the only way he can see the true Big Bang. I mean, he'll still get, you know, vast cosmological information by assembling all of these data and crunching the backwards to find the Big Bang. But what he is after is Kothanurin. And I feel like he's set this up and you could either do it sort of massive Nirlathotep style such that he's got his own little cultist group in each of these many widely dispersed telescopes and you move place to place and fight them. And they've all been in these areas long enough to have, you know, spread mythos poison into the world. And the poison can be of the type of Kothanurin in that it is all secrets and, uh, you know, personality reshaping and things like that. So people are getting a Kothanurini vibe before it happens. And then at the big uh, climax, it's when you fight this guy on his mountaintop in Chile or Peru or wherever it is that he has his observatory where he's doing the final calculations, you know, and you can see like a whole acre of server fields out there on the, on the uh, dry salt pan uh, of the uh, Arica desert with the, you know, ancient Nazca lines near it or whatever. I think that'd be a good final climax. If you're building up this sort of globe trotting campaign, if it's a single scenario, then I feel like, what you want to do is, I mean, if you're setting it in the trail era, just find out what was the cutting edge, most exciting telescope in the trail era and set it there. 
uh, Delta Green, it's in the 60s. It's the first bunch of radio telescopes, the first bunch of satellite telescopes. So it's a NASA scenario or it's a radio telescope scenario. Um, and maybe it's connected up with, you know, the, the, the radars that are looking into the Soviets and trying to find their missile launches. You know, you can, you can pull in a national security angle. If it's a modern day scenario, then it can literally be set anywhere because, as I say, astronomy now happens all over the world in a distributed fashion. But I think it'd be fun to set it at like the big telescope on uh, Mauna Kea in Hawaii because there's been all the protests about this telescope is wrong and bad. It's violating, you know, ancient uh, religious sites. Yeah. And boy, howdy, <laughs> it is. And if um, uh, you are saying, well, it has to violate an ancient religious site because, you know, it's meant to visualize Kothanurin, I think that lets you sort of make the, you know, reverse the Lovecraftian thing where the natives are correct. <laughs> the natives are, although Lovecraft admittedly does this more often than he's given credit for, the natives are, yes, no, you don't do this. We know that you're idiot, stupid people. Why would you touch the danger mountain? And the notion is that it's not human ignorance, but in a fun way, it's the Lovecraftian desire for science that is, in fact, bringing down the world. Right. I, I feel like if, it, if it's a modern day thing, that Mauna Kea uh, telescope is maybe the best one. But you would find whatever works for you. Right. And if it's not a modern day thing, you can just, you know, scratch off the period details and, and still use that concept that, that somewhere yeah. that there's a... It's a telescope in, you know, Arizona that's on uh, Navajo land or something. Yeah, I mean, yeah. telescopes go on mountains. Mountains are sacred. This yep. is not a, a hard leap to fictionalize it. Mm -hmm. And so that perhaps can give you your way in is that one of the uh, members of, of the tribe that are trying to prevent this telescope from going up have a connection to uh, one of the player characters and... Uh, there has to be a, uh, and so it's like, well, normally I know you, that you, uh, deal with weird stuff, but you're, you know, you know, mythology, you're, uh, uh you're one of the good ethnographers, <laughs> you know, <laughs> hashtag not all ethnographers, not all ethnographers. <laughs> and maybe you could come down and, you know, you know, us and you know, the community and uh, maybe you and your friends could come down. And your buddies with that FBI agent who can maybe pull some strings in Washington. Exactly. <laughs> and there would have to be sort of a, you don't want it, him to show up and go, this guy is trying to raise Kothanurin with his telescope. Uh, he doesn't know that. And so when you get there, you know, there's an initial scene, probably not too long because the players are waiting for the, the weirdness to start. And they start getting, you know, hassled by weirdos with uh, strange accents who are sabotaging the, the protests. And then that can be your route into, you know, the people who have Kothanurin in their heads and are trying to, you know, bring her and uh, put her in everybody's head. And that can lead you through the sequence of uh, clues and scenes, uh, finally, to the uh, telescope being sinister, uh, which, again, that itself will not be a big surprise. So this is uh, probably less of a, you know, players are surprised that the telescope is wrong, as opposed to players are trying to find how to prove what they as players know to prove that as characters and get the evidence that they can uh, use to... Uh, shut everything down. And of course, when that is met with indifference because the antagonist has connections, they of course have to go in and do something themselves. Right. Either destroy or misalign the telescope so that it doesn't see Kothanurin. Yeah, you know, there's a lot of different ways you could go. And it, you know, again, obvious is great if you're doing a, a short, compact scenario because the players, you know, you see that first thing of the skeletal frame of the telescope looming up against the, the sky 
players are going to vibe to that. It's like, you know, a, a standing stone somewhere. It's, it's obviously bad stuff is going yes. down. And then the fun thing is to introduce conflicts into the players. So, you know, there's the, you know, the, the guy who brought you in, your friend, he doesn't believe in any of this, you know, shamanry or magic. He's a civilized person. He went to college, but you know, grandpa, he's a little weird and he's mad about it. And when they meet grandpa, grandpa's scary because he's like, he doesn't, any white person coming to this mountain is bad news. Stop going to the mountain. You're just going to get infected. I'm going to have to fix it. So you can't do that. So you've got, you know, the elements within the, the local tribe that are mad at you for their own reasons. You've got, you know, maybe one of the player characters is a scientist that would be helpful. And so they're like, but we would get a lot of knowledge from this telescope. Maybe we just let it go a little bit and then we stop it. And then you also have, you know, the whole Yithian notion. So you could, if you felt like the scenario was not complex enough, the Yithians are dropping, you know, their agents into the the field, either the Yithian cult of Kothanur and from the far past or Yithians hunting down, you know, a Yithian Matthew Hopkins, uh, Witchfinder General is bopping and, and, in. And to a Yithian, the player characters who know about the mythos and the guy with the telescope who knows about the mythos. He's not going to make fine distinctions. Yeah. He's just reading your mind. Have you, you know, read the Nicotic manuscripts? Yes. Then too bad. You're gone. And that can be your, your MacGuffin or your, not your MacGuffin, but your not red herring either, but sort of the side. Your, your complication. Your, your complication. Your, your, your side antagonist. So if you're, or they can possess one of the players and you just whisper to whichever player enjoys that, you know, Hey, you're, from 150 million years ago, you're a cone creature. Your mission is X. Go do your mission and then watch them play it out. And then the, once the mission is done and maybe all they want to do is download the data. And then they're like, well, we live in the past. We don't care what you do to Kothan or it. Bye. And then they wake up and the Yithian is gone. And that's the vibe. And so it's, you know, who knows who's whom you can have sort of a the thing quality to it as Kothanurin and or the Ithians are replacing people's individuality with an alien one. And for a lighter uh, sort of possibility that they have to discount, you could set it up so that it at first seems like the uh, head of the project is your cl classic Lovecraftian person who looks at the wrong thing, but is just seeking knowledge. And then it turns out that at the end, he reveals himself to have known all along and is not the kindly scientist who's... Uh, probing into an area where he shouldn't, but in fact is actively evil and summons the, the henchman and so forth. And so yeah, it can, can be, be one of those things where you don't know that, you know, he's bad until he does something to reveal, oh, he's known about Kothaner in all this time. Right. He's so, so the infected. reveal is not the telescope, but the intentions of the uh, antagonist. Right. Well, I feel like we have built a either a, a pretty great globetrotting campaign or a pretty rich and potentially involute short scenario around uh, Kothanurin that will hopefully evoke uh, the original short story uh, and remind players how cool Kothanurin is. And once we've done that, Robin, what do we do except, um, you know, shut down the books and go into another hut, maybe? I, I think exactly so. Delta Green Black Sites collects terrifying Delta Green operations previously published only in PDF 
Orient standalone paperback modules. They lock bystanders and agents alike in unlit rooms with the cosmic terrors of the unnatural. By masters of top-secret mythos horror, Dennis Detweller, Adam Scott Glancy, Shane Ivy, and Caleb Stokes. In PX Poker Night, discontented Air Force members listen to the night sky and hear secrets not meant for human ears. In Kali Gotti, a Delta Green operative goes missing from a combat base in the Afghanistan war. The Last Equation, a gifted university student guns down a family of total strangers, leaving behind a string of numbers that fills Delta Green's researchers with dread. Lover in the Ice, a bitter Midwestern winter shuts down a city and awakens a threat that is all too ready to spread. Sweetness, vandalism of a family home twigs Delta Green to mythos danger. Hourglass, a woman vanishes screaming in front of dozens of witnesses in a small Oregon town. Ex Oblivione, crazed words scrawled at a crime scene, hint at Yohannath Lai and the sea. The child, a traumatized child looks to the agents for protection from voices that never cease. Delta Green Black Sights is a full-color 208-page hardback. Grab it now before it grabs you. It's time once more to climb our way up the creepity cogweb stairs. There we stop on the landing, we wave at the friendly fire salamander, the most powerful of all the occult salamanders, and then head on in to the Edwardian parlor where awaits the consulting occultist. And this time... He's uh, gathered at the behest of a beloved backer, Robert Wolf, who says, After your latest high-quality podcast offering, I go to Wikipedia to make sure I can spell Gurdjieff properly. Once there, I'm surprised to see P.L. Travers listed as influenced by Gurdjieff. Having watched Mary Poppins Returns just one evening before, I must ask, what occult channels did I unwittingly stream to my living room? So we've talked about Gurdjieff before on the show, but uh, I guess uh, in order to contextualize this for others who haven't just heard that segment, we need to very briefly remind people who uh, Gurdjieff is. And spoiler, he falls uh, more onto the sort of mystical philosopher side than the full-on spell-casting occultist and antagonist figure that you might be looking for in a scenario. Yeah, Gurdjieff is... He's basically... A, a combo of occult and mystic. He believes in a higher world, a outer vision, and he believes that there are certain occult practices that you do to awaken yourself. His, his big notion is it's basically sort of a, a, a warmed over Gnosticism that uh, most people go through the world asleep and your job is to wake up and see it as it is. This is no doubt one of the channels by which we got the matrix. It's a standard, uh, an, an old standard, uh, uh, you know, a Christmas a tradition in the world of occultism that you have uh, this sort of uh, notion of sleep and awake. And because Gurdjieff had a, uh, a way about him, a uh, era of exoticism, he was from the Caucasus mountains area in Russia. And uh, that uh, was, you know, flashy and fun in the 1920s. He developed a cult of personality. He had a big guru personality and, you know, a lot, a lot, a lot of people became Gurdjieffites. It's not just, Mary Poppins creator, but he was buddies with Carl Jung and he taught or influenced everyone from Kate Bush to Frank Lloyd Wright. So, and a lot of people who were not actually as talented as either of those people because occultism. Right. And, and among the things he was, he's a musician. So a lot mm -hmm. of musicians are interested in him. So, uh, Keith Jarrett, Robert Fripp, David Sylvain as well. And so that's uh, one of the angles you can listen to his stuff online now and 
It's sort of the bridging point between sati and then later minimalist drone music. So it's sort of a, he's never been uh, fully recognized as an important figure in the history of music, but he definitely falls within that uh, stream. And he was a self-mythologizer. His autobiography is very mythic and it's sort of, he has a sort of a Lamont Cranston style tour through the Mideast and Central Asia, picking up mystical secrets. If you're learning were to. things from the enigmatic Sarmung Brotherhood, which I feel is underused now. Yes. Uh, and that might be our way into something a little more scenario friendly. And uh, so then we get to Travers. She was born in 1899. She had a big, long life. She lived to 96. She was a Shakespearean actress, and she was interested in mythology. And she uh, originally developed that interest hanging out with uh, the uh, Irish uh, nationalist poets. And Yeats was a big figure in leading her to her interest in mythology. And that's what I think carries through her own journey through that world. And she stuck with that her whole life. And if you remember our segment on AE, she was friends with him. So another Rodian for her. Right. And like Gurdjieff, she was a self-mythologizer. Her uh, biography is, her autobiography is also mythic, which is a polite way of saying made up, uh, substantially <laughs> made up. Uh, she was very guarded about her private life uh, during her life and her interest in mythology and spiritualism and the uh, philosophy of Gurdjieff and uh, also the archetypes of Jung, who she also uh, knew and hung out with, start uh, at about the same time that she's creating Mary Poppins. And we don't know exactly when she met Gurdjieff, but sometime early 30s in Paris. And it might have even been late 20s. Right. And the first short story with the Poppins characters is published in 26. The book comes out in 34. So it's essentially the, the same period. And, of course, Mary Poppins is a mythological figure. Yeah, <laughs> right? right. She's a psychopomp. She's the, the positive goddess who comes in and brings both cheer and discipline to the uh, the children of, of the household. And who also awakens knowledge of a secret world that is all around you that you just have to be uh, able to uh, summon up, in her case, often through song, again, just like uh, good old Gurdjieff. But Mary Poppins... She bears an awful lot of mythic weight. There is no amount of mythic weight you can put on Mary Poppins that it turns out she can't handle. Not to spoil anything, but at the very tail end of uh, the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen sequence, she appears in her glory. And I think I'll just leave it at that because I don't want to spoil it. But it both amazed and worked perfectly in the Alan Moore way. And Mary Poppins is absolutely the protective goddess. The Athena, I think, is is maybe the closest you have in the Greek legendarium, but maybe even one of the older goddesses, Astarte, who was both the goddess of, you know, growing up and uh, becoming, you know, a woman and also the goddess of, you know, orderliness in the house. She protected you against disease. And then she also protected sailors at sea. Uh, she was a goddess of storms and commanded beasts. So maybe Astarte is even a better goddess than Athena for Mary Poppins. But if you think Athena, you're not far off. Right. So if, if you have a Trail of Cthulhu uh, series that admits a lighter note, uh, <laughs> not just pulp, but, you know, fun pulp, or you need like a, you know, a change of pace after some really horrible things have happened. I think there could be nothing more delightful than to, you know, have the characters come upon or participate in a summoning of a start. And uh, if they know their Cthulhu mythos, they're thinking, this ain't going to work. There's no real gods. Those are just reflections of the 
uh, horrible indifference of the universe that we've projected our nonsense onto, and they attend the uh, the right and who should appear but a start, and she's Mary Poppins. She's got her umbrella and her long uh, dress, and uh, uh, she decides, uh, looks around, looks for a group of unruly children that she needs to whip into shape, and who should she set her eyes upon but the player characters? Who needs whipping into shape more than player characters? So she starts uh, taking command and uh, running their lives and, you know, giving them good, useful magic. But after a while, perhaps as adults, being bossed around constantly by Mary Poppins might be a little bit wearisome. And you go to P.L. Travers and say, this is happy. What do we do? So, oh, thank goodness. She's focusing on someone else now. That's great. I can keep the royalties. I can go off and uh, learn about Sufism and Hinduism and index the uh, library of the Gurdjieff Society. You guys figured out. I never really got rid of her. <laughs> I thought writing the book would do it, but she just left temporarily and now you've got her back. There is definitely a sort of a king in yellow quality to, you know, oh no, you're you're now the hosts. Good luck with that. Yeah. And the problem is she's just too nice, but overbearing. Just a yeah. little overbearing. She just wants everything to be run correctly. I don't see that there's a problem with that. Yeah, that you could definitely have that quality. I think it's maybe more of an unknown armies mysticism than it is a straight up Cthulhu mysticism, but certainly any game in which you have admitted a, I don't want to say friendlier archetype system, but let's say friendlier archetype system than the straight up mythos, bringing in Mary Poppins as just the veil that Astart or Athena wears now is, is not at all unworthy. Uh, and I think that's a good way into the, the Gurdjieff uh, circle. And certainly if you're running something that's a, a archetypal 30s game, you know, you're going to be tired of shadow boxing Jung pretty early. So it's good to have P.L. Travers and Gurdjieff and, and Mary Poppins in the background. Right. And, and Gurdjieff, like a lot of gurus, was known to be a sort of dominating figure when he was annoyed, uh, perhaps even somewhat of a bully to some of his uh, acolytes. So <laughs> Accidentally poisoned them with his radium treatment, who can say? Yeah. So <laughs> Mary Poppins could start whipping him into shape as well. And so, uh, you know, there's that. That whole thing of uh, a theme that goes way back in my work is that uh, getting too close to any goddess, even a goddess with a beloved Disney connection or God with a beloved Disney connection is dangerous to your long term mm -hmm. health. And then you yep. have to do something about it. Well, I, I can't think of a, a better note than uh, to leave on than the idea of having to gently tell Mary Poppins to leave the universe again. So it's time for us to not leave the universe, but to leave this episode. But never fear, we'll be back down the chimney with another one next week. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pograin Press. Ask for Gown. Arc Dream. Dark Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Support our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Keep our space dogs aloft by joining such backers as... Jacob Borsma. Mike Merles. Rich Renallo. Kevin J. Maroney. And Lewis R. Evans. Wear this show or drink it from a mug with Ken and Robin Merle at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Ingest the eldritch cappuccino foam with our latest design. If it's coffee, I'll drink it. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time, and once again, we will talk about stuff.